Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Korean War, episode 22. I hope you're still with me after last time, since, yeah, that was a bit of a weighted episode, wasn't it? And we did leave you with a lot of information to take in. If you're just here for the war, or for that moment when the North Koreans cross over the Rubicon, which in this case is the 38th parallel, then welcome, and I promise not to break out my tinfoil hat in this episode. At least not too much. Yes indeed, after a surprising level of background detail even by my standards, we're ready to cover what is probably 
one of the most straightforward parts of the entire war, even if historians may disagree about why it happened. We are all agreed that in the early hours of the 25th of June, 1950, the North Korean People's Army began their invasion of South Korea in force. We're in for a whole load of treats in this episode, guys, so without any further ado, I will now take you to that scene where it is 4am on the 25th of June, 1950, at the 38th parallel. The Song of the Week this week is brought to you by OnlineGreatBooks.com. Do you enjoy reading and would you like to read more? What about books that you've heard a great deal about but you've yet to get around to reading? I'm talking about the classics of Western civilization by authors like Homer, Nietzsche, Cicero, Spinoza and more. Maybe you've thought about checking them out but then again, where would you start? And how do you ensure that you get the most out of your reading experience? Well, history friends, that's where Online Great Books is here to help you out. OnlineGreatBooks.com is a new sponsor of When Diplomacy Fails, and they're here to make reading these books an enjoyable, rewarding, and even sociable experience. What do I mean by that? Well, here's the thing. With OnlineGreatBooks.com, you can get access to several privileges and perks, which makes delving into and absorbing these books an absolute breeze. And these perks include a reading goals system, which is designed to help you progress through the great books with just three one-hour reading sessions each week. That's all, so three hours a week is all you'll need. Most interestingly of all, though, each month you and others who have also enrolled will meet in a two-hour video conference to discuss this text, alongside a small community of readers in a Socratic seminar led by a trained Socratic host. Hmm... Of course, for this to happen, you need to get your hands on these books. And with that in mind, every month, OnlineGreatBooks.com ships a carefully selected edition of one of the great books directly to your home. You'll begin with Homer and progress through the works by Plato, Aristotle, Shakespeare, etc., all the way through to the moderns. To summarise then, with OnlineGreatBooks.com, you have the chance not just to avail of a revolving door of incredible works, but to nerd out about them with others, and to ensure that you always have a supportive community behind you, checking up on your progress and making sure you're not falling behind. There's so much to unwrap and enjoy in this great service, and if any of this sounds interesting to you at all, then please go and check it out. Click on the link in the description of our episode, or visit onlinegreatbooks.com and use the code DIP, all lowercase, to get 25% off your first three months. To access great works, join a vibrant community, Save yourself some money and support the show at the same time. Make sure you head on over to OnlineGreatBooks.com and use that code DIP. That again, OnlineGreatBooks.com and the code DIP. Thanks, guys. But before we actually get to the song of the week, it is also brought to you by a surprise I have planned. What is a surprise? Well, it's an episode that is appearing in both the History of England podcast feed in the middle of June and in the Patreon feed on Monday the 7th of May. So yes, we are taking a break from the Korean War for a month so that we can delve properly into the Thirty Years' War. But I also have something else planned, because you see, while I was busy trying to engage in some cross-promotion, I came across this idea for Henry VIII's foreign policy. And of course, I liaisoned with 
David Crowther, The History of England, and that's where that episode is going to appear in about the middle of June 2018. So if you're listening to this now, just you can just go and listen to that. You don't have to do the Patreon option. However, if you would like to listen to this in our feed, in When Diplomacy Fails' feed, that is, then I'm making this episode available to $1 patrons and above. Why am I doing this? Well, first of all, it's so that the $1 rank can be promoted a little bit because it needs some love. The plan is with the 30 Years War to release those episodes ad-free to $1 patrons and above so that everyone who's patronising this podcast gets something. But it also is serving as a kind of fundraiser for myself because I am out of a job and looking for a job and would like to raise some extra funds. You guys have been doing amazingly well on the Patreon. We are in the 1,400s now, in case you weren't aware. And when we get to 1,500, we are, of course, going to have a pod party of some kind. I would invite Bismarck, but for whatever reason, he's just not returning my calls. Anyway, we are going to celebrate, but first we need to get there, and that's where you guys come in. So if you're interested, head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails and check that out. If not, of course, that is grand, but please, if you're interested in that subject, do check out that episode in David Crowther's History of England feed. Okay, guys, we are fully ready now to look at the Song of the Week. Thank you for your patience. I know there's been a good bit of promotion this week, but there you go. So the Song of the Week this week is My Pillow and Me, brought to you by Lizzie Miles in 1923. That wasn't meant to rhyme, but this song is pretty darn good. So enjoy it, guys, and we'll be back with episode 22 of the Korean War. I've got the old song, you know, feeling caught, my sweetest song. I mean, I've got it back. I've tried to make believe that I'm not sad. Not a single soul to cheer me, and I'm so forlorn. No one to hear my cries and sympathize. Nobody knows but my pillow and me. From east to west, at 4am on the 25th of June, on a Sunday, a torrent of gunfire, artillery shells and human activity spread across the 38th parallel. A map of the Korean Peninsula demonstrates above all the geographic vulnerability of Seoul to invasion. 
Much like Belgrade was to the Serbs, Seoul was simply too important historically and culturally to be anything other than a capital of a South Korean state. Yet it was also dangerously vulnerable, located as it was only a few miles from the 38th parallel. Unlike the Serbian case though, the Austro-Hungarian Empire in this attack would not be held back. The North Korean People's Army advanced rapidly over the days following the initial attack, causing several Republic of Korea divisions to fold out of fear of being cut off and surrounded, and Kim Il-sung's forces marched into Seoul on the 28th of June, after Syngman Rhee's government had blown bridges across the Han River, and Syngman Rhee himself had ordered the execution of several political prisoners. For those citizens living in Seoul, this was to be the first of four battles for their city. But it was in the first battle, which for the South Koreans, inflicted a level of sheer shock and terror unmatched by all other assaults. In a simultaneous seaborne invasion of the eastern portion of the peninsula, North Korean People's Army units landed several miles south of their South Korean enemy, cutting them off in a pincer movement and overwhelming thousands more. In the space of a few days, the vaunted strength and spirit of the Republic of Korean Army had contracted from 95 to 22,000 men, and the morale and force of this army, which was underfunded, beleaguered, and virtually abandoned in the months before, would not recover for several months. The five days of action shattered Rhee's army, so that by the first days of July it was plain that the peninsula would be overrun without foreign aid. Soon Koo was a captain in the 9th Regiment of the Republic of Korea's 7th Infantry Division. Experienced in fighting the leftist insurgencies which frequently spilled over the 38th parallel, Soon Koo's younger brother remembered that for the month of May and most of June, Soon Koo and his peers had been on high alert. Inexplicably, it seems to us now, on the 23rd of June this alert was cancelled. Thus, for the first time in several months, Soon Koo was enjoying some well-deserved leave and was visiting his aunt in Seoul when he learned of the attack. Soon Koo, his brother remembers, was one of thousands of men who never returned to their units when the attack came. If Soon Koo's story reflects badly on the spirit of the Republic of Korea's fighting men, then Colonel Pak Sun Yup more than makes up for this. As one of the most promising commanders of his generation, Pak Sun Yup was tall, strong and proud to lead the Republic of Korea's 1st Division. To the west, his brother commanded the 17th Regiment, and this 17th Regiment was tasked with defending the isolated Onjin Peninsula, which was a slice of territory that was surrounded by water on all sides, with the exception of the northern portion of it, which faced right into the North Korean border. In short, Pak Sun Yup's brother was trapped, and he would be saved only by the timely decision to beach a load of landing craft behind their position so that they could make a good their escape. Today, Korea's border sees the Onjin Peninsula lie within the north, reflecting perhaps the fact that, strategically, the region is impossible to hold for South Korea. While he came from a military family then, Pak Sun Yup was well versed in the exercises one must carry out in the event of an invasion. When he was first informed of the invasion over the phone at 7am, while on manoeuvres in the suburbs of Seoul, Pak flagged down a jeep and made his way to the house of Lloyd Rockwell. Lloyd Rockwell was a major in the Korean Military Advisory Group, or KMAG. Clearly, Pak Sun Yup needed Rockwell's help to mobilise the troops in the area, and after a brief conversation, Pak and a sleepy Rockwell drove northwards in a state of delirium to the divisional HQ, 
where Pack expected to find his three regiments ready to go. Situated on the Kaesong approach, this strategically important route had been singled out in years past as one of supreme importance for the defence of Seoul, since it led directly to the capital city. It was therefore imperative that Pak hold it with the men he had, but immediately Pak Sun-yup faced problems. Little did either Major Rockwell or Pak Sun-yup know that the North Korean People's Army were sending their elite divisions their way. These elite divisions were formed by those North Koreans who had volunteered to fight alongside the Chinese against first the Japanese and then Chiang Kai-shek, who had been repatriated in the preceding months. Pak's regiments had yet to even practice manoeuvres together as a whole division and had also been greatly hampered by restrictions on the availability of ammunition for practicing with live rounds. These little issues we've of course covered, but Pak's situation just shows what the result on the ground was for that high-level diplomacy and strategy that we've covered before. Not only were Pak's men unprepared for the battle to come and up against far better equipped and more motivated soldiers, but they also lacked a common defence strategy. In both Seoul and further along the 38th parallel, soldiers were encouraged to develop a defence strategy independent of any common goals. Holding the line was all they would be told. In the midst of communications disappearing and men deserting, Pack faced the even more shattering prospect of abandonment by his American friends. At 12 noon on the 25th of June, Major Rockwell received a phone call from Seoul, which informed him that the Korean military advisory group was pulling out of South Korea. If the military body tasked with advising and aiding South Korea left, then how was the Republic of Korea possibly going to defend itself? Questions like these must have tormented Pak Sun-yup, but still more harrowing was the waiting game he had to play on the other side of the bridge, which spanned the Imjin River. While the Im Jin River may be better known for the posting occupied by TV favourites MASH, it was a critically important crossing, as the river flowed from north to south and flowed into the Han River, which was south of Seoul. The geography of the peninsula isn't super important, guys, and I know I've been throwing a lot of names at you that you really do not know where they are or anything like that, but that's okay. All you need to know for our story is that several bridges spanned the Im Jin River, and these were rigged to blow in a bid to slow the northern advance. Pak Sun Yup refused to allow the bridge to be blown just yet though, as on the afternoon of the 25th of June, he was still waiting for his missing regiment to cross. Pak couldn't believe that this silent regiment, the 12th, just for the record, could have been liquidated so quickly. At 4pm though, the terrible sight greeted Pak Sun Yup. This regiment, which was led by a bleeding commander, had been reduced to 40 men. When they finally limped across the bridge, Pak Sun-yup ordered it to be blown up, but the charge just wouldn't blow. Pak Sun-yup and his men then fled the scene as fast as they possibly could, and by 8pm, the North Korean People's Army had captured the bridge intact, and they were using it as a key crossing point to bring their most terrifying weapon to bear, the T-34. The northern invasion had attacked through four separate points across the 38th parallel with 110,000 men, nearly 250 tanks and over 1,600 artillery pieces of varying size. The Republic of Korea had no anti-tank weapons, they were low on ammunition at all times and they couldn't hold a candle, try as they might, to the experience and professionalism of their northern counterparts. 
It was quickly apparent among Pack's men that a rout had taken place. Spirits were in the toilet, and men with only a few months' training were now faced with an apocalyptic scenario for which they had never been prepared. What was even more incredible, they had never even seen tanks before. I'm not joking. Tanks! 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 There's no way to stop the tanks! Pack's men exclaimed in despair. Pack observed that even the word tank seemed to frighten them somehow. They were not equipped to defeat or confront these beasts of war, and they were too frightened to confront them in any case. On the 26th of June, most of the American and other civilian evacuees were placed on board ships designated for Tokyo. In the face of a searing North Korean air superiority, several multinational boats distinguished themselves. One Norwegian cargo vessel with space for 12 managed to cram 700 people on board and bring them all to safety. As these figures were evacuating, some of whom had lived and worked as part of the K-Mag detachment since it was established, one imagines the proud speech of Kim Il-sung playing in the background. A desperate, bitter scene for many that left, a feeling pervaded that the South Koreans had been abandoned, and that in spite of the promise of support that K-Mag had implied, America and her allies had left at the first sign of danger. Ambassador Mucho had stayed behind though, and he withdrew to the south with the remnants of the Republic of Korea government. Kim Il-sung's speech was a typical propaganda exercise, reminiscent of Adolf Hitler's declaration that Nazi Germany was merely responding with ludicrously overwhelming force in response to Poland's supposed border provocations. Kim and his peers denied to the end that they had in fact invaded in an act of aggression, but there should be no doubt in anyone's mind that this was in fact the case. No evidence of a mildly successful southern counterattack against select villages, or the instances where against all odds some units of the Republic of Korea managed to capture new territory north of the 38th parallel, should convince us otherwise. In his podcast on the Korean War, which I will provide a link to in the description, the podcaster Paul Kendrick compares those Nazi claims of supposed Polish border provocations followed by the defensive invasion of Poland with those claims of Kim Il-sung here, thereby implying that the idea of the South starting the war holds as much water as claiming that the Poles launched the Second World War. In any event, since sometimes we can get a bit ahead of ourselves with these conspiracy theories and we might even think to ourselves, hey, maybe the South did start the war, but no, guys, let's bring it back down to earth. Paul Kendrick makes a good point when he reminds us just how little water Kim Il-sung's claim held. While we might not be completely confident in the sincerity of either Syngman Rhee or his allies, we cannot deny that it really doesn't make sense for the whole idea that the South launched the war. I'm going to leave the debate at that for the moment, and I will, as I said, put the link to Paul Kendrick's Korean War podcast in the description. He goes into more detail of the individual units and the battles, etc., so if that's more your thing, do check his podcast out. In any event, evidence was later recovered and photographed in the War Ministry in Pyongyang later on in the conflict, which contained operation orders that were written in Russian. And this is a smoking gun that surely implicates Moscow as much as Pyongyang. Harry S. Truman received the call from Dean Acheson on the afternoon of Saturday, the 24th of June. Korea was 13 hours ahead of Eastern Standard Time, and Acheson's call was actually made only 8 hours after the North began their invasion, but still, it was here, the conflict that had been prepared for, and upon which so much had depended. 
Now that the lead-up to the war had been traversed, it remained to be seen how the outbreak of it could be handled. Paramount among the concerns was the strategic implications of the North's supremacy in tanks and the total inability of the South to combat these hulking beasts. It was also over the phone that Atchison recommended a diversion through the United Nations, since American interests would be best served, and her actions would surely have the most value, if several other nations could be rallied to support her. Truman thanked Atchison and agreed to return to Washington the next day. Truman left Kansas airport on his personal aircraft, Independence, and during the three-hour flight to Washington, we can only imagine what was on his mind. What kind of immediate plans would have to be implemented? What kind of desperate tactics should be recommended? What were some of the worst-case scenarios to prepare for? Since we can never know what was on Truman's mind, as he flew to the capital on the 26th of June, where it was already the 27th of June in Korea and Seoul was on the verge of falling into Kim Il-sung's hands, we also cannot know for certain whether my thesis is watertight. Technically speaking, the evidence I can present remains only circumstantial, yet I do feel that even considering the incendiary conclusions and ideas I've explained here, there is good case for this point of view. It was enough to persuade a professor from an Ivy League institution, Columbia, to write a thoroughly detailed book on the situation after all, and he's seen the first-hand papers, been to the archives and talked through this thesis with other people in his field. And he, Richard C. Thornton, remains convinced of his thesis after all this. President Truman never jumps out from the historical record as a president of loud and militaristic ideas, even considering his track record in the closing days of World War II, when he ordered the first atomic strike on another country. A lot of people gloss over the fact that it was Truman, this southerner, whom many rivals and indeed foreign dignitaries mistook for a mere hick from the sticks. But there was a strong, keenly intelligent mind behind his southern drawl. In almost every recording we've heard of him, Truman sounds as though he thinks carefully over every word. A critic would argue that he was a bad speaker, especially in comparison to Roosevelt's confident, straightforward tone. Not judging a book by its cover is always important when it comes to analysing the history, and the case of Truman is no different. I won't pretend to have managed to read through the man's bottomless numbers of biographies while also researching the Korean War, but I would also urge those that have a certain image or a certain bias ingrained in their mind when it comes to President Truman to try and keep those minds as open as possible. Truman was a family man, deeply conservative in terms of his racial views, and his critics could claim merely a replacement president and a poor one at that for Roosevelt's act. Yet there was a reason why Roosevelt chose this farmhand from the South, who lacked a proper college degree, who memorised his eye test to get into the Missouri National Guard because his eyesight was so bad, and who worked for years in Missouri under the patronage of the divisive city boss Tom Prendergast, who saved the US military billions by chairing a committee designed to eliminate wastage and corruption, and who appeared on Time magazine because of it. Truman made a name for himself as a successful behind-the-scenes administrator, with a record of productivity and efficiency that endeared him to the right people. And most importantly, of course, one of these people was President Roosevelt. By the time of the 1944 election, which would cast Roosevelt and Truman together, Several officials within the government expected that the vice president would have to assume his critical duties at some point, such was the age and health of the current president. Only sworn in in January 1945 as the vice president, Truman had less than four months in his office before Roosevelt's death on the 10th of April. 
the unlikely college dropout, made it to the top office of the state. Truman's experience in office contained first a succession of heavy blows and then an uneasy settling into peace. This isn't the place to talk about the justification behind the atomic bomb, but Truman remained highly sensitive to any criticism of its use for the rest of his life, and he vehemently defended it in his memoirs, as of course you would expect him to. The uneasy peace which followed the Second World War was punctured by striking coal and rail workers and a slump in the president's popularity. Once in a fit of anger, he stunned his peers by sending the following speech to one of his aides to be read in Congress. Written in May 1946, the speech said, Every single one of the strikers and their demagogue leaders have been living in luxury. Now I want you, who are my comrades in arms, to come with me and eliminate the Lewises, the Whitneys, the Johnstons, the Communist Bridges, all important union officials, and the Russian senators and representatives. Let's put transportation and production back to work, hang a few traitors, and make our own country safe for democracy. Evidently, Truman was capable of seething in spite of his often calm and collected demeanour. In the event, this speech never made it in this form to Congress, but his aides must have done several double takes when it first arrived in its raw form. Was Truman capable of lying? Of presenting the war as a shock, as a travesty, and as an emergency which America must involve itself in? Conspiracy is the wrong word for it, because the end goal was for American foreign policy to be better equipped to deal with what was expected of it. We haven't delved into it in much detail yet, but the strain caused by McCarthyism and the Red Scare, which endured for over a year, engulfed Truman's administration and made it immensely difficult to conduct a policy without the public in mind. A strong stand against the North Koreans was what was needed, and the North Korean aggression did genuinely repulse Truman, just as surely as the president had been repulsed by Stalin and Hitler's horrific excesses and war crimes. Indeed, this is where the context of the era becomes so important, as the historian Brian Catchpole wrote in his book on the Korean War. In terms of the division of Korea and the regime of Syngman Rhee, Catchpole noted, Truman had been far from happy with the outcome. He had very little confidence in Syngman Rhee's narrow-minded right-wing beliefs and realised that South Korea was rapidly turning into a police state controlled by a dictator with a large armed national constabulary and a small but growing army. But Korea was just one of many locations where the tensions of the Cold War nagged upon his mind and so he remained anxious to prop up Syngman Rhee's South Korea with economic and military aid. Of course, Catchpole's extract here should wave immediate red flags for us, because South Korea's army was not growing in terms of practical power, even if its numbers did gradually increase over spring 1950. The men were not properly trained and were critically under-equipped, lacking the vital anti-tank weaponry in particular, which would become so desperately needed in the months to come. Furthermore, the economic aid supplied was negligible compared to the torrent of abuse and condescending cables sent to Syngman Rhee, ordering him to cut back on his military so that he could just sort his non-existent inflation situation out. Yet Catchpole was correct to note that Korea was merely one outpost in the world where democracy, even in Rhee's deeply flawed format, confronted communism. To Truman that was enough, because as much as he was an idealist, he was also a realist, and he understood the value and importance in combating communism in the areas it was spreading. 
Catchpole blames Congress dragging its heels for the reason why the Republic of Korean Army was so depleted by the 25th of June. But we know now, if you believe my research that is, that Truman himself must be held responsible. To the President, to his Secretary of State and to those in the know within the administration, a contained war which Washington could shape to its advantage was of great benefit. Even while it would be a great test of their strategy, Truman did not deviate from the script and as we'll see, he would remain resolute with iron nerves even in the most trying of times. Truman cannot, of course, be blamed for the Korean War. Even had South Korea maintained a more respectable army, Kim Il-sung had been itching to invade for several years and had actually met with the Soviets and Chinese several times in the 1940s, most notably in December 1948. Then it was agreed that the time was not right for an invasion, but there was no doubt that in Kim's mind, that day would come eventually. So long as he was reinforced and supported by Stalin, Kim could follow any policy and defy any resolution that he wanted. He did not have to pay heed to warnings, sanctions, or, importantly in our case, the size of the enemy army. Joseph Stalin is the man we should really single out as the figure responsible for what followed. Even while Washington attempted to shape the war to its advantage, an act which certainly cost lives and the processes that went with it, Stalin's Soviet Union actually made the war possible. Without the Soviet military aids, technology or resources, Kim Il-sung would have remained an unimportant Soviet satellite on the fringes of Asia. As it happened, Stalin saw an opening to effect a shift in world affairs and he believed that North Korea could hold the key to this formula. So it was that a conflict between the same ethnic people on an artificially divided peninsula dragged in the greatest powers of the era and several others in the first act of collective security seen in modern history. If we are to bring our focus back to the Allied strategic situation in Korea, then one immediate factor confronts us above all. This was the fear of the tank threat and the belief that a blitzkrieg of sorts would enable the North Korean People's Army to rampage down the peninsula before any reinforcements could be sent. This had compelled Washington to begin preparations in the weeks before leading up to the attack as we have seen. Large-scale exercises by infantry, making use of air and naval landing drills were complemented by the alertness of the Navy in the seas around Japan. Furthermore, the Air Force was prepared on Okinawa and Japan, and additional jets had been mobilised under General MacArthur's direction. If the Truman administration was not taken by surprise by the Korean War, what did surprise them was its course. All the aforementioned mobilisations had been undertaken on a small scale and clouded in a misleading rhetoric, but we know that Washington regarded the threat to Rhee's regime as deadly serious. The threat came from the stopping power of the tanks and the knowledge that the Republic of Korean Army possessed no true means to halt the armoured advance. Reports of sacrificial bravery on the part of the South Koreans and of some suicidal bombing runs as men strapped themselves to satchel charges before fatally directing their payload under a tank help remind us that the South Korean route was not total. If we can agree that they were not cowards, we can also accept that the South Koreans were desperate and up and down the line they ran an abject terror from the armoured advance. It was the single greatest advantage that the North Korean People's Army possessed, and for that reason, Atchison, Truman and the rest were deeply, deeply puzzled by the strategy of the North Korean advance. Instead of pushing all the way down to Pusan, capturing and eliminating it and thus removing any chance of supply, the northern invasion focused the vast majority of its energies 
first on crossing the 38th parallel at four distinct points, and then at seizing Seoul. The expectation had been that the North Koreans would of course take Seoul, but after a siege, perhaps as a kind of afterthought, with the bulk of the force heading south. Thinking in terms of 1940, the Truman administration seems to have had the explosive Western offensive in mind. It was then that the Nazis totally ignored Paris, and sought instead to pursue devastating battlefield tactics. Armed with even more tanks than the Germans in summer 1940, and better tanks for that matter, the North Korean attack ten years later, almost to the day of the French collapse, seemed somehow appropriate. Yet the mirror image of invasion did not proceed as expected. The North Koreans, rather than surging southwards, lunged instead for their Paris, and by doing so demonstrated their intentions to at least in the early phases of the conflict, limit the war. After the city of Seoul, a little bit further down south was the Han River, and it quickly became apparent that a significant holding action could be organised along the Han River, and that American soldiers could be shipped from Tokyo to take part in this defence. Contact with General MacArthur in his Japanese command base had been maintained throughout June, on the understanding that if a lunge for Pusan was made, MacArthur would be well positioned to move his men to Pusan to reinforce the line. The question of how much MacArthur knew is an interesting and valuable one of course, but considering the problems MacArthur's unwanted eagerness was soon to pose, it is safe to say that he was not aware of the overall plan. That much will become apparent in time, don't worry too much about MacArthur at the moment, but in one of his first acts the President had informed MacArthur of the situation, and they alerted him to be ready to send US ground and naval forces to stabilise the combat situation and, if feasible, restore the 38th parallel as a boundary. Truman's instruction to his commander in the Far East is significant here because it represents a significant escalation of American responsibilities in Korea before any formal permission or acquiescence was received, either from his administration or from Congress. In such a command, I believe we see a note of haste Truman was operating on the assumption that the North Koreans intended to blast their way down south in record time. If such an eventuality took place, there would be no time for political niceties, lest the entire reasoning for the war in Korea would vanish. Interestingly, the President's daughter was able to confide in her diary about the pace of events. On the 25th of June, she wrote that, Everyone is extremely tense. Northern or Communist Korea is marching on Southern Korea, and we are going to fight. Similarly, on the evening of the 26th of June, she had even more detailed information, writing that, Last night, Dad said we would resist the aggression of North Korea. Today, he sent the 7th Fleet to guard Taiwan, and he is going to send planes and ships. Whether his daughter, Margaret Truman, managed to hear of such talk over the dinner table, or whether she found out by other means, Her record is remarkable because it provides evidence of Truman's sense of urgency in committing to the war in Korea before any such approval had been granted. For these reasons, as well as the behaviour of the administration over the 25th to the 30th of June, which we will examine, don't you worry, I feel it would be fair to say that Acheson as well expected the invasion to pose immediate problems, and that all hands were scrambled to save the situation before it was too late. Only after a few days of comparative calm following the seizure of Seoul would the situation show signs of having changed, and by that point, the administration was having a different problem. That of holding back those forces it had scrambled from taking part in the spirited defence along the Han River. 
Truman assembled the key figures of his government together on the evening of the 25th of June, two hours after the case had been presented in the United Nations. The mood was tense, but the most interesting aspect of all was that this, contrary to what you might expect, was no ordinary meeting of the National Security Council. Instead, the meeting took place in Blair House, the residence used by the President when the White House was under construction. Yet, repair work had been finished on the White House in the late 1940s. Truman was here for another purpose, which we'll come to in future episodes. Remember in particular the exclusion of the CIA chief from this meeting. Normally, NSC meetings were supposed to include the CIA chief, but this one did not, and it must have seemed odd to those present when Truman began asking several questions relating to the situation on the ground in Korea. What stands out from this first Blair House meeting was the general aversion held by those present to commit any troops to Korea. Now I know what you're thinking. Zack, if you say Truman wants a big ruddy war in Korea so that he can make a big show of intervening in a war for the sake of defending South Korean independence, then why was he not jumping at the opportunity to intervene here? Why would he allow the mood to sway so far from intervention, especially when the tank threat was known to be so real? Well, history friend, that's a very good question, but in a first for when diplomacy fails... I'm afraid I'm going to have to leave you on something of a cliffhanger since we're out of time. Oh no. I hope you will return in a month. I know it's a bit unfair to do this to you, but don't worry, we have a good reason. You see, if you weren't aware, we are unleashing a new series on you guys on the 30 Years War. Because, yes, in a few weeks it'll be the 400th anniversary of that conflict breaking out. I'm very, very excited to talk about the 30 Years War once more. And we have a whole load of content coming your way. It means that, well, for at least the next year, we'll be releasing at least two episodes a week. Make sure to listen to the State of the Podcast address, just released before this one, if you haven't already, to get more information on that. But you should know that what this means is we won't be returning to the Korean War until the 11th of June. I know, it's a big deal, but hear me out. You're going to be getting a brand new series in the 30 Years War, and you will also be getting some little surprises along the way. A final reminder, guys, that you will be able to access an episode on Henry VIII's foreign policy. If you're interested in that, guys, remember you can check this episode out in the Patreon feed. All you have to do is subscribe for $1 a month, and that $1 will keep you fed and watered all the way through as we cover the 30 Years War as well. It'll be released on the 7th of May, So if you're listening to this right now, it probably is past the 7th of May, but you can go and access that episode right now before we get all caught up with the 30 Years War and such. Alrighty guys, that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and I really hope you enjoyed it. My name is Zach, you've been a lovely history friend, and this has been the Korean War. Thanks, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.